ask you a question. If there were a um, definitive test, authoritative test, everybody considered it valid and true and trustworthy, and this test, just 10 questions, multiple choice, you could answer it very quickly, would determine if you and I are wise or if we are fools, if we are living wisely or if we are living like a fool. I'm just curious, and it was definitive, it was trustworthy, you could know, I could know, uh, how many would want to take that test? Can I see your hands? Sincerely. Okay. How many would still want to take it if we would then put your picture up on the screen <laughs> and post it online and uh, go to social media showing whether you were wise or a fool? Can I still see your hands on that? Not as many. Okay. <laughs> well, it's a crucial question because the scripture says this life of ours that goes by so shockingly fast that we're all right now moving along a pathway that will absolutely prove out to be that we have lived this life foolishly, wasted it, or we are living wisely. We've been referring to Solomon in this series that we're in. This is the fourth message. And, and Solomon was a man obsessed with this issue of wisdom versus being a fool or foolish. Uh, he wrote two books of the Bible. The Spirit of God let him do that. The book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, the one that we're in. And one of the main parameters that Solomon lays out for a person being wise is that we have a growing awareness of our situational context. In other words, Solomon says you, you really need to know what season it is in your life. You need to know what time it is in life, and you need to know what the appropriate action is for the time and the season it's in your life. Growing awareness of our situational context. And we've been kind of just stuck in this one passage purposely in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon wrote. And he lays out 14 cycles of experience that our Creator has laid out for us that, that most of us will cover all of those, maybe not all, but most. And they are meant to affect us. They are meant to help our development. They're, and they're meant to move us toward becoming wise if we're aware of them. So, Let's uh, turn to our text real quick again, and it'll be page 741, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, and I'm going to read you just a few verses there. Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, Solomon, God said of Solomon that he was the wisest man that has ever lived, and so his words are trustworthy. Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, for, for everything there's an appointed time. That alone is just packed with thought-provoking insight. For everything, there's an appointed time, an appropriate time for every activity on earth. Now he starts going into his cycle of 14. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what was planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to, today, embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And we'll stop there. Now, out of these 14 cycles, I mean, we've only picked six. But let's land on this one. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. So, think about this. Our Creator 
has given us the capacity and intends for you and I in our developmental journey in this life to learn how to use our physicality, our touch, to communicate a certain emotional state in others. Uh, This is part of our development. He wants us to know how and when to embrace and how and when not to. He also wants us to develop the ability to embrace or not embrace based on situational awareness again. So each week I've said there's a kind of a formula in these 14 cycles that are meant to catalyze development in us. And it kind of goes like this. Here's my little formula. God wants us to have awareness. And if you add to that awareness, the appropriate action, once we know what time it is, what season is in, that equals wisdom. And that catalyzes dormant developmental capacities that are in us. In this case, you are wired, I am wired with this physical capacity to express affection, affirmation, and to do so in an appropriate way at an appropriate time. And unless I actually do this, it doesn't develop in me. And some of us, as we sit here today, we're, we're quite confused and uncomfortable and a bit stunted in this realm. Some of us have a hard time with communicating affection, affirmation in appropriate ways through touch. And I'm going to expand our definition today. When, when we look at that term embrace, I want to expand it. And here's what our definition will be today. Embrace today will equal any affectionate, affirming, appropriate touch. Okay, so I'm not going to just deal with, you know, just the pure hug. But any affectionate, affirming, and then that last term is critical, appropriate touch. Because we all know there's inappropriate touch. And it's not affectionate, nor is it affirming. But today when we use the term embrace, we're taking in these things. Now, I want to kind of take us down a path now to just try to understand the amazing power of this affectionate, affirming, and appropriate touch or embrace. Uh, Here's another one of these, these powerful evidences that we are made by a personal God whose core is love. We are love driven creatures. We, we can experience love in so many ways. Somebody can say something to us and we can experience love and we can give love. And someone can just by touch cause us to experience love. We are love driven, albeit a lot of times it gets kind of confused inside of us because we're also now confused with, with unresolved guilt and unresolved shame and a lot of times fear. Fear of the very one we ought to be the safest with, meaning our creator. But, but this this amazing sophisticated ability to communicate warmth and to deeply impact another human being by by mere touch and we've all experienced this it's just the right touch the right time the right way it can change our internal emotional state almost immediately and it's an extraordinarily powerful thing god made us spirit soul and body we can't understand ourselves apart from the revelation that god's given about himself and about ourselves It's just impossible. There's no no basis in evolution to conclude that we would be this sophisticated and this complex. The only sane, really, reason that we could come to is that we are made in the image of an intelligent creator who himself is driven by love. So let me, as we're trying to understand this amazing power, uh, let me just give you some other things to kind of think about to open the subject up. Now, you have a paper that I give or to, gave to each of you on your chairs. Don't, don't look at it now, but when you go home, this statement comes from that paper. But I, I urge you, when you get home, look at it a little bit more. Touch is such a powerful means of communication. 
It's the first language we learn, and it's the first sense to develop. By the way, did you know that your skin is the biggest organ in your body? It it is. It's the biggest organ we have. There's more skin than anything else. Anyway, uh, done appropriately, and that's key, appropriately, it has a profound capacity to nurture our relationships and our overall well-being. Here's some things it's capable of, and that you'll find out on your own when you look at that sheet at home. Let me go to another quote about this. This is from Jeffrey Kluger in Time Magazine, and he pointed out how newborn babies display the need for affection we all feel. A German pediatrician, Ernst Morrow, discovered in 1918 that a baby, when startled, that its arms will fly up and out and then come together in a desperate clutch. And so when a baby is startled, they kind of go like this and they try to grab for something. It's instinctive. It's wired in the baby. Not surprisingly, it goes on to say, it's a need we never outgrow. In one way or another, we spend the rest of our lives in a sort of a sustained moral clench, which means we are love-driven creatures. We're always looking for love. We're always looking for affirmation and affection given in an appropriate way. Let's go on. Peter, Dr. Peter Anderson from Southern Florida University, he says, people who touch have better relationships. They have higher levels of intimacy. Touch often produces positive emotions. Skin hunger or lack of touch shows negative association with general health, happiness, social support, relationship satisfaction, and attachment security. Some studies show excessive time spent in a digital world is more likely to produce loneliness. And we understand what this is about. Just imagine for a moment a baby, a newborn. And so you have this newborn and you speak to the newborn every day, numbers of times a day. I love you, my little baby. I love you. You're so important to me, but you never touch that baby. You never hold the baby. You never nurture the baby. And you do this until it grows into childhood. We all know, there have been studies done on this, that child will not develop physically, mentally, emotionally. It will, it will hurt this child if you don't touch as well as tell. Because we're made, we're made in the image of God. And we can experience and are meant to experience love on multiple levels and to be To be deprived of any of these levels, it causes us not to thrive and develop, but instead to to really kind of deteriorate. Let me go on, another quote. A doctor, Dr. Keltner, a professor of psychology and the scientific advisor for Pixar Films Inside Out, he claims the human touch is the foundation of human relationships. He explains, skin to skin, parent to child, touches the social language of our social life, the foundation of all human relationship is touch. Now, he did some study on NBA teams. And what he found is that amongst NBA teams, the teams that had a lot more active touch, you know, they were chest bumping and fist bumping and, you know, hugging and all this stuff when points were scored. I always wondered to myself, wouldn't it be cool that when I hit a good point, you guys jump up and your chest bump and <laughs> fist bump? And No, don't do that. That would be very inappropriate to your neighbor. Don't do that. <laughs> Bad suggestion. Um, and I'd get all out of rhythm and lose myself. So, um, The researchers discovered that teams whose players touched one another a lot did better than those teams whose players didn't. Keltner has concluded that touch lowers stress, builds morale, and produces triumph. A chest bump instructs us in cooperation, a half hug in compassion. So here we just have a lot of reinforcement from People that are trying to figure life out and figure humanity out today, they're coming to the same conclusions that way back under Solomon, 
you know, God stated, he said, you know, the truth is about you human beings, you need to learn how to embrace. And you need to learn how to communicate affection and affirmation in appropriate ways. And you need to learn the time when to refrain from embracing. God says this is key to our development, and it's something we can do. It's something we must do if we want to be fully human, fully alive. It's also critical to those that are around us for them to develop and experience God's love coming through us in a balanced way uh, in their lives as well. Now I'm going to go to a few passages that kind of give us illustrations of this in action. And so uh, let me give you a little context before I go to this first one. Jesus in Luke 15 uh, told a parable that has become famous. It's typically called the parable of the prodigal son. It's about this son who goes to his dad before his dad's dead. And he says, Dad, you know, look, I, I'm getting restless here. I, I just want my inheritance from you now before you die. Let me have it and uh, I'll be out of here. And so the dad knows his son is not thinking well, but he gives him his inheritance. And the story goes on. The son goes out. He spends it recklessly in immorality and debauchery. And he ends up broke, abandoned, and staring at the food of pigs, which a Jew would not eat, uh, you know, anything from a pig. He's staring at it enviously, wanting to eat the pig food. And the scripture says something amazing. At that time, it says, he came to his senses. And when he came to his senses, he started thinking, he said, what, what am I doing here? I had it great with dad. When I was living under dad's household and dad's rules, I had it good. Everybody had it good. Even the, even the servants lived good in dad's household. By the way, in this parable, Jesus is depicting the father in the parable as God. Now, this would have been a shocking thing to the Jews of that day. The Jews of Jesus' day, they had this picture of God that he was this austere, demanding, and frankly disappointed, a little bit ticked off with humanity in general. And Jesus came to show the truth about God and to reveal God as he was. And so in this parable, he shows this father who lets his child have his way. God does that with us. But then as the parable develops and the son comes to his senses, he says, man, I'm nuts. I'm just going to go home. I'm not even going to try to be a son anymore. I'm not worthy to be dad's son, but I'm just going to see if I can at least serve on his, his ranch, you know, because a servant has it better than I do. And then we have this verse. So he returned home to his father. Mind you, the father represents God. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, there's our word, and kissed him. Now, we read it today in our context, and we're like, oh, okay, well, we, we know God's loving, and that's cool, and that makes sense. That was shocking to Jewish years. They, again, saw God as this austere being who was, frankly, disappointed and pretty ticked at humanity. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. When you are at your worst, when you are completely loathsome, the son would have smelt bad, looked bad, was bad, and he comes in that condition, and the father a real God, a real being, he looks at him and he runs to him and he then does the thing that communicates more than words ever can. He grabs him and he embraces him. Can you imagine what that means to a broken individual, to an individual, and maybe some of you can identify, I can, I can remember being at that place in life where you frankly loathe yourself and, and coming to understand that in that condition, God loves you. He'll sweep you up into his arms. This is who he is. 
So this, this grip, this empathetic, this loving grip, this compassionate embrace, it communicated worlds to that son. And Jesus' parable, of course, was meant to communicate worlds to people then and, and right down to this day. There's another illustration I want to share with you. This goes back into the time of the kings of the Old Testament time. And uh, God had called David to be the king of Israel to replace King Saul. King Saul was quite jealous about it. And he set out to kill David before he could take over the king kingdom. But David had become best friends with King Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan loved David because when David killed Goliath, he saw a man of honor, a man of courage, a man that fought God's battles. And Jonathan was cut out of the same piece of cloth. And they became best of friends. When it became clear, though, that his dad, Jonathan's dad, was set to kill David, they set a place where Jonathan could warn him and let him know how to escape. So David is hiding off in a distance, and he has his servants shoot some arrows, and then this scene takes place. As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile. Then David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears. And these are men of battle, men of war. They were men of honor. Both of them were in tears as they, what is the word? Embraced each other. And said goodbye. And it says especially David. I guess especially David was gripping onto his best friend Jonathan. And crying the most hard. Listen that, that grip by Jonathan to David. What do you suppose that did inside him? When he was confused and on the run. And not sure how God's, God's will was working out. It had to make him feel that you matter David, I believe in you. Even though things look really bad, it doesn't look good at all. I believe in you. I'm confident in you. It would strengthen. It would comfort. That touch probably meant more to him than any words that Jonathan could have said. So sometimes the embrace brings us to a place of redemption, like in the prodigal son. Sometimes it brings us to a place of reaffirmation. David felt reaffirmed, I'm sure. And then there's one last one I want to share with you, and it goes even further back in the Old Testament time in the the book of Genesis, and it deals with Joseph. And if you've never studied the life of Joseph, just read Genesis chapter 37 through 50. You are missing a great deal if you do not know about the life of Joseph. If you have not read Genesis 37 through 50. The story kind of starts out that he's this young guy, the favorite of his father who has a large family. And he is sent out as a 17-year-old boy to just kind of check on his brothers and see how they're doing watching over the cattle and so forth. And his brothers are jealous of him because he's his dad's favorite. And so when they see him coming, he's a 17-year-old kid. When they see him coming, they're full-grown men. They decide they're going to grab him. First, they want to kill him. But one of the brothers says, no, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And they do. They sell this 17-year-old kid into slavery. And for 13 years, he goes through hell. He's in and out of jail. He's falsely accused. Nothing seems to work out for him. And yet, everything seems to turn his way ultimately Long story short, after 13 years, God sees to it that he's elevated to the position of being the second in charge of Egypt itself. He interprets a dream for the Pharaoh of Egypt. Pharaoh says, you're the guy that I need at my side. And he becomes second in charge of the most powerful nation on earth. Now, it's been 13 long years since these brothers have seen Joseph and all of a sudden, they're starving. Their land is in famine. And they have to come, of all places, they have to come to Egypt to get food. 
And when he first sees them, he doesn't let them know that it's him. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. He's changed. He's a 30-year-old man. He's not a 17-year-old kid anymore. Plus, he's sporting the look of an Egyptian at that time. But he finally gets to the place where he reveals himself to these brothers who had fouled him so terribly. And here's the scene. It says, then he, meaning Joseph, he embraced his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Again, physical. It was physical. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers. Yes, the ones that sold him into slavery. And he wept on them. And afterward, notice afterward, his brothers talked with him. He had already told them that it was him, that he was their brother. But they were so stunned. They were so completely paralyzed by their own shame, their own guilt, their own fear. They couldn't talk to him. Even though he was trying to say, it's okay, guys, it's okay. God sent me here to do good. You know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But they couldn't hear it until he grabbed them and he wept on them and then something melted inside them the fear the shame the guilt kind of fell down and the barrier was gone I don't think it would have been that way if he would have just spoken to them now here's the thing I want you to consider why would God want these particular incidents recorded preserved and passed down to people all through the ages I think the reason is really clear because this business of communicating affectionate, affirming, appropriate touch, it is powerful. It, it, is, it is something that God has entrusted us with, wants us to develop, wants us to see how important it is, wants us to see the power it has to infuse life in people, free people from fear and guilt and shame. Give people hope when they've become hopeless. Give people certainty when they become uncertain. Help people to feel significant, secure. Bring satisfaction. We know that touch can do all these things. Affirming, affectionate, affirming, appropriate touch. It does all these things. And so I believe God put these in place purposely to help us understand the amazing power that God has given to each of us, touch. And we've all experienced it. We've all experienced how the mere touch of a family member, of a friend, of a loved one, can completely change the internal climate, the emotional state of our soul. Sometimes the, uh, the mere touch of somebody that's affirming us, it, it's maybe changed some of us, the whole trajectory of our lives. Mere touch. So it's a powerful thing. And so I try to summarize it a little bit for you. And here's what I came up with recognize its power. God wants us to understand the power of affectionate, affirming, appropriate touch. Recognize its power. You have this power. God's given it to you. He wants to, to work it into the lives of others through you and through I. So recognize its power while practicing it conscientiously. You see, it can be used in a wrong way. I mean, let's face it, touch can be used seductively. Uh, some salespeople hope it's none of you guys, but they know that psychologically that if they're trying to sell something to somebody, if they, they kind of do one of these or just lightly touch you on the hand or something, they know you're going to be more disposed to buy from them. And they use this to manipulate, to con, to position people to use. So that's the wrong way. So when I say conscientiously, I mean we're going to use this, this capacity, this amazing power in a way that God intended it to be used to give, to bless, to build to communicate the heart of God to others through ourselves, we're, we're going to use it conscientiously. Now, 
allow me to drift a little bit. Uh, one of the things I've noticed through the years, and I've been doing this stuff since 1984 uh, at, at its leading pa- uh, pastoring churches, leading churches. And um, one of the things I've been amazed to see is the power that I seem to have over people. Now, 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 before you think, oh, boy, he's really proud and presumptuous. Well, watch where I'm going with this. <laughs> no, 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 I'm sincere. Like, I watch. I'm a watcher of people. And, and I watch. And, and some people, you know, like during the worship service, they're very animated. They're singing. They're, they're engaged. They're clapping. They're doing all that. And, and as soon as I come to talk, it's like Mike Tyson hooked them or something. They go. <laughs> just, I mean, I guess it's good they get a good rest. They, they probably say to people, I love going to that church. I always leave so refreshed. Yeah. <laughs> but I just seem to affect people that way. Other people I've noticed, as soon as I start talking, it sort of throws them into this, this frenzy of texting. I don't know what it is, but they just can't stop themselves. And, they, and they're, they're just, I talk and they text. And then there are other people. They've been silent maybe through the whole worship service other than singing, you know. And then as soon as I start talking, I cause them to talk. I don't know what it is, but they just start talking, and they talk more than I talk, and they talk through the whole service. It's kind of them talking and me talking. I don't know why I affect people that way, but I do. And then there are some, and I, I'm telling you, everything I'm telling you is the truth. This is what I observe when I look out. Some I bring out, I bring out the amour in them. Oh, yeah, I bring out the romance in them. I look out there, and I have seen the darndest things. I, I mean, literally, some of, you might, some of you might remember, I had right here about the third row, right, right where you're sitting, Trent. I had this young couple, and I noticed they were twining more and more, and I'm watching, and I'm trying not to watch, and I'm like, <laughs> and the next thing I know, he hoists the girl up on his lap, and then I said, no, 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 we're not doing that. I literally stopped them in the middle of the service. Uh, I don't know what it is that I do, but I mean, I, it's almost full-blown making out, I see. It's, and it doesn't happen until I start talking. I don't, I don't know what it is. And then, and then on some, I love this one. I don't know how I do it, but I bring out the inner masseuse in everyone. I, I look out, and I see people... I kid you not. And I'm like trying not to look. At, you know, whenever I see weird stuff in the audience, I like try to go over the other side. But it's like. I mean, so. <laughs> why do you say all this, Randy? Why do you share that? Well, first of all, I'll just let you know, I do see. <laughs> but I want to take you from understanding the amazing power of affectionate affirming, appropriate touch, to managing its amazing power. Uh, don't get me wrong. Man, you're sitting there and you're holding your, your spouse or your girlfriend's hand and, or your arms around them. That's cool. I'm, I'm all good with that. I think that's within boundaries. But, but I want to ask you, let, let's try to look at some ways of managing this because Solomon did say there's a time to embrace and a time not to. So what if we tried to Give some consideration. Would it be worthwhile to consider that in environments, in context, situational context, in which the concentrated attention of everyone is necessary, that I should try to do whatever I can not to distract anyone else? 
Doesn't that seem reasonable? Just curious. For some of you that have sat behind those masseuses and the, ro- the romance people, did you find them distracting? Can I just see hands from anybody that's been distracted? Oh, yeah, look, look at all It was the same way in the first service. So it's not just me. <laughs> I, I, how about you sat behind the talkers? They're talking the whole time. How, how many of you have been distracted by some of that? There again. You see? So maybe as we consider managing affectionate, affirming, appropriate touch, we say, you know, in an environment that it's set up for everybody to give concentrated focus that I shouldn't do anything distracting. And so maybe it's a time not to embrace on certain levels. Maybe I should ask myself, you know, is this going to be distracting? Is this going to be disruptive? Is this going to just be distasteful? There's certain environments where certain behaviors are just not appropriate. Some of us haven't been trained, haven't been taught this way, and that's cool. And that's why we're doing this now. <laughs> so let me real quickly, quickly give you a couple passages that help us in this business of managing this amazing power that God's entrusted to us. Passage from the book of Romans in the New Testament. And I will give you some context so that you get the full impact of this. It's a simple statement. It just says, love each other like brothers and sisters. By the way, this takes all the sexuality out of this this exchange of affection to affectionate, affirming, appropriate touch. Love each other like brothers and sisters. Excel at showing respect for each other. So I, I need to be aware of the situational context again. Now, it goes on to say in the same book of Romans, here's Paul writing to followers of Christ living in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And he says to them, he says, greet each other with a kiss of holy love. This is repeated four other times in the New Testament. Greet each other with a kiss of holy love. Now, why is that significant? And by the way, this doesn't mean that we should be going around smooching up with each other necessarily now. This was a culturally acceptable expression um, in those days. You might recall Jesus in Luke 7 had a meeting at a Pharisee's house, and he starts to go down the list of ill treatment that the Pharisee gave him. He said, you know, you didn't give me a bowl to wash my feet. You didn't give me a kiss when I came in. So these were all expected things. By the way, Uh, We have records in the first two centuries of the Christian church, this kiss of holy love. It was only men kissing men and women kissing women because sexual immorality was always a problem, always will be a problem. And and so just to put it in context, but why is this important? Why? Because the Bible was written, the New Testament was written in a world that had tremendous class distinctions. I I mean, rank rank. And where you came from was very important. For example, 60 million people in the ancient world of New Testament times, 60 million were slaves. Roman Empire would come in and conquer your your land, and you became a slave of the Roman Empire. Doctors were slaves. Lawyers were slaves. Everything in between. And so why was this kiss of love such a powerful thing? Because at the Christian community... Roman royalty, Roman senators who had become followers of Christ, and Roman praetorian guards who had become followers of Christ, and slave, Christian slaves, they all met together, and they showed 
this kiss of love that they considered each other brothers and sisters and equals. It was the greatest protest that could possibly be made that in God's community, amongst God's people, we don't care about these distinctions that society gets so immersed in, fights over endlessly, age to age, anywhere you want to look. But as Christians, we transcend. Philippians says we're, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. And this kiss of love, it expressed the kind of respectful affection that showed in God's family. We're all one. Roman soldier, slave, right together. One. No class distinctions. It was a powerful expression. Very affirming, I'm sure, to those that were on the lower end of the social strata. Here's another one from 1 Peter. It says, finally, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate. I think we forget this. That, that, that God really wants his community of people to be affectionate for one another. And affection can be expressed appropriately in lots of ways. I mean, something as simple as, you know, a pat on the shoulder, a hug. I mean, there's all, all these different kinds of ways. And touch is a very powerful way of communicating it. Compassionate and humble. And here again, love each other as brothers and sisters, keeping it sexually pure and moral. There's one more that I want to share with you. Let me give you the context first. But no, 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 let's not do that. Let me give you the context first. Um, (laughs) The Apostle Paul had planted a church in Ephesus. Uh, He stayed there longer than he stayed anywhere else as he planted a church. He stayed there for three years. And so now he knows that God is leading him to leave there, and he knows that he's never going to come back again. And so he gets off of the land of Ephesus. He gets out on an island. He sets up a meeting with all the elders, the leaders in the Ephesian church. So the masses of followers of Christ are left back in Ephesus. Paul is meeting just with the leaders of the Ephesian church because he knows it's goodbye. And he doesn't want to disrupt the the young believers. He doesn't want to confuse them. He doesn't want to dishearten them. He doesn't want to break their hearts. He doesn't want them to start doubting that they've made a wise decision to be followers of Christ. So he meets with the leaders who are more mentally, emotionally, spiritually mature. Here's the scene that takes place. With these words, he knelt down with them all and prayed. All of them, all of these leaders were in tears, throwing their arms around Paul's neck. They kissed him affectionately. What saddened them most of all was his saying they would never see his face again. Why is that in the Bible? God could have skipped that. But he wants us to see the power, the power of affectionate, affirming, appropriate touch And it was appropriate for this this emotion to be expressed so raw amongst the leaders. It would have been disorienting and maybe discouraging to the whole Ephesian church. And so there was a time to embrace and express this affection. And there was a time not to. You know this, you that are parents. You might be going through the very worst day of your life. Worst season of your life. But when you get around your, your young children... You're going to scoop them up. You're going to be warm. You're you're not going to let them see you breaking down and crying uncontrollably and so forth. So we all understand this. This ability to embrace or not to embrace based on the situational context and our awareness of it. Now I'm going to close with a story that comes from a church in Las Vegas. Actually, Kim has visited the church a couple times. It's called uh, Central Christian Church in Las Vegas. And the pastor that was there at the time of the story, his name was Judd Wilhite. 
And the story is about a guy named Cody Huff. And it's possible that some of you guys have even heard of Cody Huff because he was a big-time bass pro fisherman, uh, made a lot of money. In fact, at one point, he had $600,000, you know, in cash, not to mention houses, boats, and all this kind of thing. And uh, as the story goes, Corey was a heck of a fisherman, but he also had a heck of a crack habit. And before you knew it, $600,000 gone, house gone, bass boat gone, life gone. And Cody Huff was living in a field that was fairly close to this church, uh, you know, this church in Las Vegas, uh, Central Christian Church. So Central Christian Church has, still has, uh, had, still has, as far as I know, a ministry to the homeless where the people go out and, you know, they'll take them sandwiches and different things like that. And so the people in the church had become familiar, some of them, with Cody because, you know, they would go out to him. He's sleeping there in the field by their church and giving him sandwiches and so forth. Well, the story goes that a team of the people went out and now they were offering the homeless people that they went to. They were saying, look, if you want to get a shower, we now have a, a shower for you guys at the church. You can come in, you can take a shower. Well, the story goes that Cody had not had a shower for three months and his his odor was such that even the other homeless people were starting to, to get a little perturbed with him. And so when this offer came that he could come to the church and get a shower, Cody thought, well, I guess I better take this up. He didn't really want to go to church. Church was the last place in the world he wanted to go, but a shower he did need. So I'm going to read you now what actually occurred from that point on. Cody says, I walked into the church in this lady named Michelle who knew me from the homeless ministry, said, Good morning, Cody. How are you? Then she looked at me, and she said, Cody, you need a hug. And I said, Honey, you don't want to touch me, because I haven't had a shower in three months. If Michelle heard me, she didn't seem to care. She walked up, looked me in the eyes, and gave me a big hug, and told me that Jesus loved me. In that split second... I was somebody. She even remembered my name. That was the point, get this, that was the point where I knew that God was alive in this world. Now, the story doesn't end there. Over weeks to come, Cody, uh, Cody ends up becoming a follower of Christ, turns his life around, starts a business, a successful business, gets married, and he and his wife are now very engaged in that church in the homeless ministry. Now, here's the real question. This is the one I had to ask myself. This is a hard one. Instead of Michelle in that church, if that would have been Randy Goldenberg or you, would the story have ended the same way? I mean, I'm going to be very honest with you. I can't answer that. Everything in me wants to say, I, I know that even though the guy smelt horrible and was dirty, I, I would have given him the hug. But I'm going to tell you, that's a real difficult one for me. I don't know. And, and the thing that I realized is that that hug, that embrace, it communicated something that tore down all the barriers that mere words or mere handouts couldn't tear down. So here's the first question I think we should ask ourselves. Would the story have ended that way if it was you, if it was me? That's number one. Number two, I think we would all do well to ask ourselves a question. Where am I as far as the use of this tremendous power that God has entrusted to me of affirming or affectionate, affirming, appropriate touch, embrace? 
Am I one that's sort of paralyzed and, and, and I can't communicate warmth and affection through touch? I'm just sort of frozen and chained and, and I need God to help me grow in this area. I have people in my family. I have people in my circle of closest you know, influence, the people that, that, that are near and dear and I can't even communicate to them very well and, and I know God wants me to change that and maybe you're saying today, today by God's grace, I, I want to get on this. I want to I start developing in this way. Maybe that's what this message has to do with you today. Maybe some of us, we have been oblivious to context, oblivious to the way we affect anyone or anything around us, and we clumsily have used this gift of affirming affectionate touch in inappropriate ways at inappropriate times. And maybe God's telling us, you need to wake up to this. This is a tremendous gift that needs to be used very carefully. And you're going to say, you know, I need to work on that. I'm going to do that. And then for somebody, maybe, just like that parable that Jesus told, that son that just threw his life away, had no excuse, runs back to the father because he's just bottomed out, essentially. And maybe that's who you really are. Maybe you're presenting a facade today to the rest of us that's not who you really are. But inside, you don't know who you are. You don't know why you're here. You're dying. You're confused. You're scared. You're just looking for something or someone to grasp onto to eke out a little more pleasure. But the truth is, you desperately need your Creator. You need Christ. You need His loving leadership. You need His mercy. You need His forgiveness. Just like I do. Just like all of us need it. But this is your day that you can return home to the Father just like in that parable. And I hope you will listen to that prompting if that's going around in your mind. And you'll say, this is the day I'm going to put my trust in Christ. I'm going to become his follower. And I'm going to follow him freely. And I'm going to follow him fully. And I'm going to follow him forever. I don't really care what anybody else does. Today, today, I'm giving my whole life to Jesus. So, what decision would the Spirit of God have you, have me, to personalize and take serious? Uh, let's consider that as we pray. Father, you know us. You know our hearts. We pray, first of all, that your spirit will so affect us that we will all expand greatly our views and our willingness to let your spirit use these bodies of ours to communicate warmth and affection and affirmation to people in appropriate ways. And on those other levels, you, you know us. You know where we need to be strengthened and where we need to take steps the future. Help us to do that. I ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.